0: So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. So years ago, uh, Laura, my wife, owned this bakery. It was called Little Something Sweet. (laughs) She started this bakery right in the heart of a town in Tennessee, Athens, Tennessee. She had all kinds of wonderful services there like walk-in orders and small parties, large and small catering events. But my favorite thing she offered there were cakes. One of her specialties was wedding cakes. One afternoon, in the middle of the afternoon, I walk in, because I know that she's prepping for this wedding that she has in the evening. I walk in to see how it's going, and she's in the middle of making a masterpiece. And I'm talking, this thing was out of sight. It was this four-tiered masterpiece, a wedding cake with uh, swirls and pearls and roses fixed on top, green vines cascading down the side. And and just at the right angles, it, It even kind of glistened with this glitter for some, I don't even know, but it was absolutely gorgeous. Incidentally, watching my wife create in the kitchen is evidence that we are created in the image of God. I mean, how else can we be so creative and imaginative if not those things were on loan to us from an imaginative creator, right? This particular day, we're standing there talking while she's working and the clock is ticking. The wedding is coming in the evening. But I noticed that she took the second tier of this wedding cake and had put it aside to work on it a little bit more. See, the second tier, it's a critical tier. It's that that middle weight-bearing tier that that bears the weight of the other two tiers. Something had gone wrong. See, she had left it cooling a little bit too long in the pan and it created this, this fissure right down the middle a crack in the middle of the cake and typically a fissure like that is not something you worry about you can well, you can cover it up a little bit you know you you frost it you ice it you put a flower in the right place and you camouflage it and nobody knows i mean if it's bad enough there are tricks to the trade. You could take these little wooden dowels and from the inside hold the cake together from the inside and nobody ever knows the difference. Well, she had tried everything. This, this cake was in trouble and every trick of the trade was not working. And so I watched her do something that just made me, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't stand to watch it. I saw her reach over and grab the edge of this industrial sized garbage can And she scooped this entire tear into the garbage can. I mean, it was gone. I said, what are you doing? This thing starts in just a few hours. She said, I know there's no time to mess with it anymore. And I watched her walk over to the mixer and begin cracking eggs and pouring milk and measuring flour. Because she knew in that moment what from time to time you and I, learn when things begin to fall apart in ways we can't repair and it's this sometimes what we really need is to restart Everybody needs to restart sometime, right? I mean, you live long enough, you learn how to fall and fail. You know what it means to blow it and to come to a place where on the inside, no matter what you do, you can't seem to hold yourself together from within. That's when we need a restart. You know what the poet Louise Tarkinson said about this? Louise said, I wish there was some wonderful place called the land of beginning again, where, where all our heartache and mistakes could be dropped at a door like an old shabby coat never to be put on again. I, I wish there was a place, some wonderful place, called the land of beginning again. Isn't that great? The truth is there is. And, and in the church, we, we have a word for it. It's called the, the kingdom of God. And when, when I say kingdom of God, I don't, I don't just mean heaven for what awaits us after this life. I mean right here and right now. The experience of being renewed in such a way that you, you realize you're living in a, a new kind of realm, a domain, a kind of dominion where grace falls like, like rain from the sky. Where there are, there are these deep rivers of mercy available where you can be renewed and actually begin again. That's what the Bible's all about, you know. In fact, in Scripture, there is this dominant theme of what it means to be renewed, and, and it, it, it casts itself in language like creation. So, you know, the beginning of the Bible, it starts with being created and there is oh, all this water and the water separates and out of the water there's this dry ground that emerges and now there's color. There's greens and blues and all kinds of shades and hues and, and then people And people are charged to go forth and be fruitful and multiply and it's great. Well, you know that story, right? But almost all the favorite stories we have in the rest of the book are a retelling of that story. Yeah. I mean, Noah. Think about Noah. So you know Noah is this story about the flood and the destruction of the earth, but the truth is it's not a story about the destruction of the earth. It's a story about the rescue of one family from destruction in the earth. And, and then when the waters begin to recede, there are all these creation images recreation, renewal images of water receding and dry ground emerging again and these people emerge to repopulate the earth. It's renewal, recreation. The people of Israel, when they leave the the, the bondage they experienced in Egypt, you know one of our favorite stories is the story of the Red Sea, right? Right? Where Moses and the people are are backed up against the sea, and and God separates the waters. Well, there God goes again, separating the waters, so that this people can walk across on dry ground and ultimately be fruitful and populate a new and promised land. What? See, the theme of recreation. It it recurs again and again throughout Scripture. It's, It's the story of Pentecost where the Spirit empowers the church to become the church, but it's the story of the Spirit hovering over the chaos of confusion again until there is the recreation of a new humanity in Christ in the book of Acts. Did you you know that the the Gospel of John is actually ordered, structured, with an anatomy that is intended to to actually repeat the structure of the seven-day creation cycle and revelation, the end of the book. It ends with a new heaven and a new earth. And Paul, through his letters, continually reminds us that it is possible for you to be renewed because if you are in Christ, there is a new creation. And everything old has passed away and everything has become new. But again and again, every time we come up with this opportunity to be renewed in faith, every time that we get a glimpse of the kingdom of God, this other way to exist in this world where we're made new, we're always going to face obstacles that keep us from experiencing renewal. And of all the obstacles, I mean, floods and red seas and (laughs) confusion and discord, of all of the obstacles through Scripture, there is one obstacle that is familiar to you and me, because it is as human as all of us, and it's this. You can't experience renewal if all you know is regret. regret something sometime. You know, regret is is simply a carrying around this deep kind of remorse in the heart. A remorse or a deep-seated sadness over something that you've done or something that you've not done. Social scientists tell us that that sometimes as we age, the things that we regret change the older we get. So if you're under fifty years old, the tendency is, they tell us, you regret mostly things that you've done. You know, I I chose the wrong school. I I made the wrong investment. I lost the major client. I called off the engagement. But but if you're over 55, if you're older, they they tell us that what we tend to regret are the things that we haven't done. I didn't spend enough time with my aging parents. I didn't listen to my kids when they really needed to talk. I didn't ask forgiveness. I didn't seek peace. I didn't apologize. I didn't ask her to marry me. See, anyone can regret something sometime. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to have some lunch with the great preaching icon, Fred Craddock. And over barbecue, he told me about a time that he went to a nursing home to preach, to speak. And he got there early because he wanted to have dinner with the residents. And they said, that's great, they'll love having dinner with you, but let them choose their seats first because they have their own seats and you don't want to get in the middle of that. So he did. He stood back and he waited. And the only seat left was a seat across from a man named Henry Anderson. So Fred sat down in front of Henry and said, my name is Fred. What's yours? He said, Henry. Henry, how long have you lived here? Henry said, I've lived here eight years. Well, what what did you do before you retired? Well, it turns out that Henry was a military man and he was in the Marine Corps band. He had played at some of the most amazing venues in the world. And Fred said, I bet you've I bet you've met some pretty interesting people, haven't you? He said, that's right. I, I played before four U.S. presidents, and one day I met Winston Churchill. No way, Henry. Yeah, that's right. I met Winston Churchill. After we finished the concert, he came over to us. He said, Well, what did what did you play, Henry? And you said, Well, during marching season, I, I played the trumpet, and and during concert season, I, I played the harp. But I gotta tell you about Winston Churchill. He said, well, tell me about him. One day after I I finished the concert, he came over to us. He leaned into us and said, that's mighty fine music, boys. Then he reached into his coat pocket and he pulled out a cigar. And he says, you boys care for a cigar? No kidding, Henry. what, What did you say? He said, I told him, no thanks, I don't smoke. He said, I've been thinking about that for the last eight years. Fred said, well, why is that? He said, because if I if I had taken that cigar, and I could walk up and down the halls of this place here and I could hold that cigar and say, Winston Churchill gave me that. You see that? Winston Churchill gave me that. I'd really be somebody. But as it is, I... I'm nobody in this God-forsaken place. See, any of us can regret something sometime. So there's this story in the Gospel of Luke, right? Of this man who was despised by everyone. All of his neighbors hated him. Well, they hated him because of his reputation. They hated him because of what he did for a living, because of choices that he had made. And he regretted everything. We know this because of how his story ends. He was a man who wasn't very tall. And because he wasn't very tall, even though he was looking for Jesus one day, he couldn't see him. So we're told this guy climbs a tree a nearby sycamore and waits for the entourage to walk by. Jesus sees him, calls for him by name. His name is Zacchaeus and says, Zacchaeus, come down. We're going to go to your house tonight. And he comes down. But it's curious to me, isn't it to you, that as much as we may look for God in the midst of our isolation, in the midst of feeling like we are the loneliest person in all the city or all the world, isn't it interesting that when we can't see God, God sees us. So Jesus says, come down. And you know the rest of the story if you've been in Sunday school even a few times as a child. They go to Zacchaeus's house and something happens in Zacchaeus that changes everything. By the end of dinner, he announces to Jesus and all those who are with him that he's going to give his money to the poor and pay back anybody that he had cheated four times what he had taken It was a real transformation. Something really clicked. And nowhere in the story does it specifically say that he had carried around regret. I mean, that's not what Luke says, but you know. When you feel like the loneliest person in the room and there is no one to go home to, no one to share your burden because you because you've been despised your whole life. You know that at some point or another, you begin to take inventory over the decisions you've made that have brought you to where you are, and you carry this regret. See, back in 1998, there was this really creative miniseries on TV about the life of Jesus, and they portrayed this story about Zacchaeus and Jesus eating dinner in his house in a really creative way. Pretty compelling. They're sitting there at dinner at the table, and they're eating... They're breaking bread with one another, and the room is filled with others in the town who would come in to be a part of this, this dinner. Zacchaeus says to Jesus, look at them over there. They, they hate me. They, they do, they, they despise me. Jesus, with a mouthful of bread, says, why? Zacchaeus says, well, I, because I, I, I cheat them. I do. I, I steal from them. And, and so you, you feel this regret in his language just dripping from his words. Um, Philip Yancey tells the story that long ago when the Alaskan Highway was first being developed, Tractor trailers would would go upon that gravel road for miles and miles and miles. And because of the weight, because of the weight upon the ground, would create these ruts, these deep ruts where the wheels were, where the tires went. And someone at the beginning of the Alaska Highway made a, a homemade sign in big block letters that said, Choose your rut carefully because you'll be in it for 200 miles. Regret can feel like a, like a rut that you just can't seem to get out of. A rut that keeps you making the same mistakes again and again. Did you know that Zacchaeus' name literally means innocence and purity? But now he's this chief tax collector hated by everyone because he's a crook. He's anything but innocent and pure. He's a crook. He's a thief. And yet, he didn't start out that way. And neither did you. Somewhere along the way, we make decisions that take us down this rut, and for 200 miles, we convince ourselves we can't get out of it, so we keep making decisions that reinforce the very thing that we regret. So back to the mini series. Jesus and Zacchaeus in that room, and Zacchaeus says, look at them. They, they, they hate me. They do. Jesus tells, tells, asks them why, and he says, well, because I cheat. I, I take from them. I, I steal from them. And with a mouthful of bread, Jesus says to him, well, stop. Give back what you took and um, follow me. I mean, how simple, how could anything be more beautiful than the grace of those words? Just stop, give back what you took and follow me. There is a way out of regret, you see, and there is a way better than to regret, and it is to repent. So to repent literally means to stop what you're doing and change. In the Hebrew mind, the Hebrew word for repent, one of them is shuv. It means to be going in one direction. Stop that direction. Turn around and go in the opposite way. But there's another word. In Greek, it's metanoia. It means to experience a kind of change of mind that results in a change of behavior. Metanoia means to go beyond the way of thinking that has led you to a place of deep, deep regret. Sometimes to truly repent, you have to take action to change the behavior that has caused you a life of regret. But it's not easy, is it? I mean it's not easy to simply change your mind about anything. That's why it's been said we don't you know, we don't think ourselves to new ways of living. We we live ourselves to new ways of thinking. Th- did you notice how many active verbs Zacchaeus had to take in this story that ultimately led to his well to his transformation? He was searching for Jesus. He searched. He climbed a tree. He rushed down. He received Jesus. He, he spoke. He stood. He declared all these action verbs that declare, I want a change of mind that results in a change of behavior so that I don't regret anymore. So, you do know, don't you, that in the kingdom of God, where grace falls like rain and mercy is like a deep river of renewal, you do know, right, that there is nothing for you to do to be made new. But there are things to do to not regret the thing that you've already been set free from. In the Gospel of John, we're promised, the one who the Son has set free is free Indeed. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul, who knew something about regret, who knew what it meant to live a life of regret, had these words to say. And Paul said, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Is there some regret that is keeping you from renewal? Because according to Paul, according to the Word of God, when we repent, it leads to a salvation that leaves no room to regret anymore. We also hear in the the Acts of the Apostles, maybe the most beautiful, powerful invitation to live again. Repent therefore and turn back, it says, that your sins may be blotted out, and times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. See, when we repent, we no longer have to regret because the promise is when we repent, we can be refreshed. talks about being refreshed. One of the most powerful images that's used from the beginning all the way through to the end is the image of food, of a great table where all those who hunger and thirst for righteousness may be able to come and be refreshed, renewed. We hear these words from Isaiah 55. Come, all of you who are thirsty, come to the water. And those of you who have no money come come anyway buy and eat come buy wine and milk without money and without cost why spend money on the things that are not bread and why do you work so hard for the things that don't satisfy Zacchaeus had heard that scripture multiple times in synagogues growing up and maybe for the first time in a long time with Jesus at His own table. He heard them again that you can be refreshed through no work of your own, but by the receiving of grace, like a meal, like a banquet. The great messianic banquet that is to come is the promise of all the ages that any who have ever struggled with carrying around the the hunger for newness may be welcomed at this table. It's quite an invitation, isn't it? To be welcomed to a table that you didn't set with food that you didn't buy so that your soul may be satisfied. In the kingdom, we, we call that grace because in the kingdom of God, grace, well, it falls like rain and, and there are these deep rivers of mercy that make us new and it's like a Messianic table set for any who are hungry and any who thirst. So what do you do if you want a place at the table? First, you have to believe that you're welcome at the table, that everything was set because of the work of Christ upon the cross. He prepared a place setting just for you and all you have to do is, is offer a, a yieldedness of heart. And maybe it begins with a simple prayer like this. I recognize I cannot set a table like this on my own. I cannot prepare grace and mercy for myself. I cannot repair the parts of myself where I am broken. And I need you to feed me in places that I long to be satisfied. So Christ, here I am. And if there's room at your table for me, I'll come. Now the only thing left to do... It's gone.